This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Augustine's famous conversion, recounted in Book 8 of the Confessions, the Garden, the Hearing of Tole Lege, and the Tears and Reading of St. Paul, is truly a conversion to Christ, but as Book 9 shows, it is more properly and more fully a conversion to the Church. Augustine had pursued his career in rhetoric to the highest levels. Through his tireless work and perpetually exhibited competency, he had secured a post as the imperial rhetor in Milan. This means that he gave speeches in the presence of the emperor in Milan. This is, to say the least, a remarkable achievement. He descended the heights of success in Rome, at least for someone of his status, and would be for us something of a remarkable achievement of an individual going through perhaps state school all the way up to being some high political position. The hope that Augustine had, as he makes explicit in his confessions, is that he would be granted a governorship by the emperor, as it happened with other imperial rhetors. This would permanently secure his status among the elite class. To this end, he dismissed his common law partner with whom he had a son, who was a teenager at the time, and secured a marriage into a wealthy noble family. Yet when Augustine turns to embrace Christianity, he abandons these hopes entirely, retiring without having gained any of the security and social advancement that had consumed his entire youth, indeed his life up to this point. Augustine, as many in his time, saw baptism as the end of such ambitions. Augustine's baptism by Ambrose in April 387 was a clear rejection of and departure from his former career path. Cynical readings that Augustine could foresee his future fame are not only fanciful, but ignore the reality that Augustine took the more uncertain path. There is no way that Augustine could have known that his entering of the church would lead to him becoming Bishop of Hippo some 10 years later. And even more so, that he would become one of the most influential Christians in history. It is true that Augustine could have simply professed his Christian faith as his own, his private religion. To some degree, this is what he had done as a Manichaean. Manichaeism, perhaps an unknown religion to many here, was a dualist religion that stipulated that there were two realities, the darkness and the light. Though there's certainly more to say than I'm going to say now. <laughs> Matter in some form was the darkness, as the darkness was a creative and potent force that sought to wed the light to itself. The light was the divine soul now trapped in a material darkness. The human, truly enlightened, was to fight against this darkness, which was bound with, the very, with their very being, their very flesh and blood. The onus was on the individual, who was not part of the whole of humanity, but rather light with those others who realized they were also the light. Manichaeism offered a kind of private existential religion. The Manichaean community was founded on this belief in the divinity of the human soul and the existential struggle against the darkness. This human soul struggled against material darkness toward the purification of the divine light, the divine light that is the true human mind. While it had a social community, Augustine's practice of Manichaeism was existential, the realization of his true self amidst the agony of the darkness, his desires, and prominently, of society. To be a Manichaean for Augustine was in part a rejection of the claim of human solidarity. And this rejection, like a modern existentialist, 
meant that one was free to pursue the bent goods of society, not as goods in themselves, but as private goods. The idea of in and not of had an ontological basis. When Augustine converts to Christianity, he is not then embracing a private religion. Rather, he understands his conversion to be toward and in the church. We see this in Augustine's foundation of the monastery at his home in Tagast, and later as he's ordained a priest at the nearby city of Hippo. Augustine is baptized in a, into a societas, a community, and this community is constitutive of Christianity, not, as I've been arguing, an accidental byproduct. Indeed, in Augustine's earliest sermons, the catechumenate and hippo, that is to those who are seeking to be baptized at Easter, we see Augustine's understanding that it is into Christ, into the whole Christ, the church, that one is made a Christian. <clears throat> Augustine's understanding of the church is worked out in part through his engagement with the conflict with the Donatists. The Donatists were a schismatic group formed out of the difficulties of the Diocletian persecution. The Donatist party accused a bishop of having handed over the sacred scriptures to be burned by the imperial, imperial confiscators. In doing so, this bishop was, they argued, renouncing the Christian faith and became a traitor, or as they, called, or as they are called in Latin, traditores, those who handed over. Because of this betrayal, all those ordained by this bishop were tainted by his fault, and thus not true priests, and potentially, this would be a logic that plays out around the time of Augustine, potentially those who were baptized by these priests were not truly baptized. This contagion spread throughout the world, with some Donatists arguing that only now in Africa did the true Christian remnant endure. Now there's certainly more to this conflict, begun under Diocletian and silenced under Constantine, to be re-inflamed by Julian the Apostate. However, the Donatist church was especially successful in North Africa, so that in many places, most Christians belonged to Donatist churches, while Catholic churches were much smaller and in a way outmanned. So it was the case when Augustine was ordained a priest in, at Hippo in 390-391. As Augustine's debate with the Donatists develop, after the failure of several attempts at detente, Augustine lands on the primary claim of the Donatist as a church of the pure. For the Donatists, their schism from the Catholics was justified, indeed was righteous, for their church had remained untainted by the blasphemy of the traditores. This did not mean for Donatists that every member of their church was perfect or even good, though the implication is not hard to reason toward. That is, you could see how this would work itself out. I belong to the pure group, so therefore I am pure. Rather, it was the moral and ritual purity of the Donatist clerics that ensured the purity of the church. Again, one can see how this logic could be applied to individual Donatists. My purity makes the church pure. The church then was that of the holy and pure. Perhaps this was eschatologically fulfilled, but even here and now, it was given by its members purity, a kind of true holiness. Augustine's response is, I judge, very important for our understanding of what the church is. Augustine emphasizes the theology of the totus Christus, or the totem corpus, right, the whole Christ, or the whole body, as the church. The church is the whole body, or the whole Christ. It is not, constituted, it is not, it is not constituted by its members, but by Christ through the incarnation. 
One of the primary contexts for Augustine's articulation of the Totus Christus is found in his discussions of the Psalms. Now, Augustine's homily on the Psalms should not be viewed as just a passing interest. The importance of the Psalms for Christians is, I judge, obvious. Christians pray the Psalms every day, they are chanted in the Mass, and since the earliest days of the Church, they are understood as the very words of Christ. Thus, when Augustine begins to preach on the Psalms, he asks the question, who is speaking in the Psalms? His answer is that it is Christ, and yet us, or the Church. For Christ did not disdain, he writes, to assume us into himself. He did not disdain to transfigure, transfigurare, us into himself, and to speak our words so that we might speak his words. This is a central point of Augustine's understanding of the effects of the Incarnation. Through the Incarnation, Christ has transfigured the human into himself. This Augustine calls a wonderful exchange, divine commerce, the change of things in this world by the heavenly dealer. This mutatio is in hoc mundo, it's in this world that these things are transformed or transfigured. Augustine does not understand the incarnation as simply the fiat offering of grace that restores the human. To say this differently, the incarnation affects a concrete transformation of the human through the reality of the incarnation. The incarnation joins the head, who is Christ, with the body, who is the church, the bridegroom, and bride. Augustine writes, quote, the son of God who became son of man for our sake to make us who are children of men, children of God, end quote. The effects of the incarnation, the effects of the incarnation is the taking up of a body, not just the word become flesh, but the word drawing humanity into himself. This again is the whole Christ, the totus Christus or totum corpus. So such a unity between head and body it is that when looking at the Psalms, Augustine avers that it is not simply that Christ speaks, but the Christian, but the church. There is one single voice because there is one body. Indeed, head and body speak as one. Augustine claims about the words of the Psalm, quote, we all unquestionably said it with him. Without him, we are nothing, but in him, we too are Christ, end quote. This is the relationship between the Incarnation and the Church, for through the Incarnation, the Christian is wedded to Christ. This union takes place through the bond of charity, which in many places is called the Holy Spirit by Augustine. Of this bond, Augustine states, quote, were it not for the body's linkage with its head, through the bond of charity, so close a link that head and body speak as one. Augustine turns to the book of Acts for an example of this unity. When Paul, or Saul, is persecuting the Christians and is knocked down by Christ on the road to Damascus, Christ asks, asks Saul, why do you persecute me? Not, as I've noted earlier, why do you persecute my followers? Why does Christ ask this? Because, Augustine says, Christ has united the Christian to himself. I hope that some of this theology has been made clear earlier in reference to the martyrs. But suffice it to say, the effects of the incarnation are a social, hence relational transformation into Christ. It is then of a deepening of human solidarity in the very source of unity. So it is that through Christ's gracious charity, the Christian is bound in charity, a charity that ensures close connection. And close connection embraces unity. And unity preserves charity. And charity, Augustine says, brings the Christian to glory. 
The extent and profundity of the human's union with Christ is witnessed in Christ speaking through the Psalms. Christ does not simply speak on behalf of the church, but truly speaks as the church, as Christ's body. Augustine observes how Christ speaks as the church in her confusio, her anger, in persecution, and in her temptation. Christ is not speaking the Psalms vicariously. Rather, in truth, Christ speaks as the church. Augustine emphasizes, quote, Christ is speaking here in the prophet. No, I would dare to go further and simply say, Christ is speaking. He is going to say certain things in this psalm that we might think inappropriate to Christ, end quote. Christ speaks the words of his very body because his body has been truly transfigured into union with him. The church is Christ's body. In a way, the church is Christ. Thus, Augustine averse, quote, yet it is Christ who is speaking because in the members of Christ, there is Christ. I want you to understand that head and body together are called one Christ. This is the one Christ. The church is not an addition to the incarnation or even a locus of the individual salvation. Rather, the church is the body wedded to Christ through the incarnation in the church's sacraments, in baptism, in the Eucharist, as we will see. Augustine's image of how the church incorporates individuals into Christ is vivid and I judge different from how we, or I should say I, often understand the church. Augustine describes how the church prowls for humans. He says the church eats them. That is, the church devours and incorporates the human into Christ. This image of eating or of incorporation aptly shows how the human, how humanity is made into Christ. For incorporation is literally to be taken into a corpus or body. If Christ and the church are one, then humanity is drawn into this unity with Christ, not as something in conflict with what it means to be human, not at all in conflict with human solidarity. Rather, it is Christ taking up of humanity, of, of taking up of a body that is the church. So that human solidarity exceeds the original human societas, as well as obviously overcoming the prideful divisions that in sin mimics human solidarity. Augustine understands the church, that is the body of Christ, not simply to be realized in those who gathered around Christ and joined together after Christ's passion, resurrection, and ascension. Rather, whereas the incarnation of Christ is foretold in the Old Testament throughout, Augustine contends the church was disclosed openly. Hence, the Old Testament, Israel, and the promise to Abraham are mysteries of the church, Abraham was not called by God and told of the uncountable numbers of his descendants just as a result of his faith. Instead, the promise to Abraham is of the body of Christ, first in Israel and continued fulfilled in Christ as the church. Hence, Augustine proclaims that in Abraham, Christ is proclaimed in shadow, but the church is disclosed openly. Quote, no sooner had the head been foretold than the body must be too, end quote. The church then is bound with the incarnation, that humanity is made into one societas or incorporated into Christ, indicates another dimension of Augustine's understanding of the church. As I noted with Augustine's criticism of, Don of Donatism, the church is a societas, but not a society or societas formed merely by the consent of its members or the shared ideological outlook among those who join the church. Yet many do not see the church this way, they view the church merely as such a society. 
either as the Donatists view the church, as that communion that they construct and maintain in their own purity, or as the Christian emperors might view the church, as a social instrument, both expressing the unity of Roman Imperium and held together through Roman Imperium. What these views miss or distort is that the church is constituted through grace. One way that Augustine describes this is that those who do not see the church, especially those who do not see the figure of the church throughout the scriptures, are those then who do not truly see Christ. He says, for, quote, they did not want to be saved gratis. What is meant by this gratis, to put it simply, is that one cannot see the church because one does not want or refuses to see what is constituted freely and not by one's own will. I want to return to this as it pertains to the church, but a word about grace is, I think, helpful. Without going into the particulars of a doctrine of grace, predestination, cooperative, or other forms of grace, a basic description that Augustine gives of grace is that grace is a gift. Augustine uses the image of the soldiers casting lots at Christ's crucifixion for Christ's seamless tunic. Casting lots, just as how the disciples were guided to find the replacement for Judas Iscariot, is an image of God's gift. So with the soldiers at the crucifixion, they cast lots for Christ's tunic, not because the tunic was for sale so that they might purchase it, nor do these guards win Christ's tunic because of their merits, nor can they render asunder the tunic which is seamlessly won, in a way, from head to body. Through the image of the seamless tunic and the casting of lots, Augustine contends that grace is not for sale. Grace is God's will, not our merits. Hence, the seamless tunic of the Lord is an image of the unity of the head and body, which cannot be rent asunder, for the tunic is woven together by the heavenly charity that will last forever. It is charity that binds this tunic together. Augustine outlines grace in the opposite. Quote, everyone in whom the Savior has found nothing to crown, but only what he must condemn, one in whom he has found nothing that deserves rewards, but only what merits torments. Grace is not earned, it is not merited. Indeed, the very concept of grace points to our great dread, to the opposite, that the human is not able to earn, indeed, may be in fact in debt. So grace is a gift, and so much more. The church then is a societas wedded to Christ, thus constituted by grace. The church does not found itself, nor does it guarantee its own success or unity. Rather, the church's inheritance is a gift. But this is what makes the societas of the church so hard to see for many. In fact, according to Augustine, humans do not want to see it. I think of two examples, maybe this is three examples, that I believe might, I hope, illustrate this point. The first is seeing a gift, let's say, of Christmas. When one receives a Christmas gift, what do you understand this to be? You walk down the stairs, you see the gifts there, you see socks again, and you say, I deserve something more than this. <laughs> I hope my children hear this. <laughs> in a way, a Christmas gift, which is a gift, is inexplicable to our reductive way of thinking. You must have earned it somehow. I'm assuming the socks are a reflection of what kind of father I am, sadly. How do we or how can we understand a gift? The second image I think builds on this is a friendship Indeed, I think transfers well to marriage, but I'll stick with friendship as the base. If we take that friendship as a kind of love, 
Not a relationship of utility or necessity, but something more. I think we all know that friendship exceeds the particular things you might do with one another, such as, say, playing soccer, dancing, stiff drinks, etc. But we know that it is not 3,000 hours of soccer playing that makes someone a friend, though it certainly wouldn't hurt, I think. It depends how good they are, I guess. The deeds or acts themselves don't yield what we would call a friend or friendship. Rather, a friend is something beyond utility or necessity. Indeed, friendship is a relation, in the end, of love, and not the stupid modern understanding that love is a chemical, often sexual. This is certainly not the case. Rather, I have friends with whom I have been friends for so long that I don't even like them. <laughs> Yet, they are my friends. There is no chemical compound present that seems consistent with what at least I call friendship. No, friendship implies something of a relation of gift. In the end, there is something willful, freely willful about friendship, which exceeds utility or necessity. I hope it is clear that this is all, all the more applies to marriage or even the painful loving friendship of a parent and a child. Thus, in our reductive age, with the science of friendship and the science of social organization, it is hard to understand how we form and are in society or communities. Our explanations tend to be ideological, linguistic, ethnic, or more recently phenotype. Yet this hardly forms communities. And increasingly, it masks diversity in excessively stipulated homogeneity. In this age, it seems we then make religion, much as Palfrey hoped, a private affair, so that the church is made to be a social organization of ideology, or even more frequently, power. As one ideology of power identifies everything else as a rival power. To say this differently, power seemingly only sees power, and suspicion views everything suspiciously. But what is the church then? Well, as Augustine has observed, it is not a community founded by its members, or upheld by the merit, virtues, or purity of its members, or even of its priests. Rather, it is constituted and wedded to its head, Christ, bound in unity through the charity of the Holy Spirit. This is the principle of the church's unity. It is not the consent of its members, and the unity of the church exceeds the sum of Christians. What is more, it is a body formed by the free gift of grace. Hence, its very existence is to a world of individuals driven by the libido dominandi, an impossibility. Even as we know that power, utility, need, surely do not exhaust our own lives and friendship, nor do such exp explanations exhaust what is meant by the church, the corporate body founded on Christ's, God's great incarnate love is difficult or impossible to see. Thus for Augustine, the church is, I hope, clear, wedded to his understanding of Christ. Indeed, we might say that Augustine has a threefold account of Christ, drawing from the Nicene Confession through St. Athanasius, that Christ is truly God and truly man. Augustine, we might say, holds that Christ is truly man, truly God, and truly the church. There is such a profound unity between Christ and the church that the gratuitous, operative, and efficacious work of Christ is not simply mediated, but affected in the church for Augustine. <clears throat> Hence, in his Easter homilies in the first epistle of St. John, Augustine asks what is meant by the phrase that, quote, Jesus has come in the flesh, end quote. What of those mentioned in John's epistle, 
who are called Antichrist, those who deny that Christ came in the flesh by their deeds. Augustine urges, quote, let us ask why Christ has come in the flesh, and we find who denies that he has come in the flesh. Right, so why Christ has come. Charity led Christ to the flesh. Quote, whoever therefore does not have charity denies that Christ has come in the flesh, end quote. With the Donatists in mind, Augustine notes that Christ died for humanity and taught humanity charity. But, quote, you, implicit here, the Donatist, don't have charity, because for the sake of your honor, you cause divisions in unity, end quote. You are, I should continue this, quote, you are tearing to pieces the body of Christ. He came in the flesh so as to bring it together. You are crying out so as to scatter it. Augustine emphasizes his point by drawing out a variant in the verbs used in the verbs. Some read, quote, and every spirit that denies the fact that Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. This denies is negare in Latin. However, the variant Augustine has before his congregation says not negare, or to deny, but solvere, to dissolve or to break apart. Thus, Augustine emphasizes this point, reading the verse, quote, and every spirit that dissolves the fact that Christ has come, or tears apart the fact that Christ has come in the flesh, is not from God, end quote. So those who seek schism in the church, or more properly by extension, who reject the societas of the church founded in Christ, in effect, reject the incarnation by rejecting the effects of the incarnation. Augustine states, Christ came to gather, you came to dissolve. And he asks, quote, how do you not deny that Christ has come in the flesh, you who break up the church of God that he gathered together, end quote. In rejecting the unity of the church, in rejecting that the church is the body of Christ, Augustine notes, you dissolve Jesus, and you deny that he has come in the flesh. For Augustine, there is no rupture between the body of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. Just as a Christian is made one with Christ as the church, so too the means of participation and transformation are the sacraments of the church. Augustine, as all in the early church, discusses the birth of the Christian from the mother church, a particularly North African phrase, I'd say. Augustine tells his congregation that the mother church is in labor. He repeats that they are a people being created and from birth will grow up in Christ. One grows in maturity in the church from infancy to old age. And the stages of growth do not give way, but endure persisting together in harmony. The human is remade, but this remaking is a renewal that is more profound than the original. However, as perhaps one might anticipate, Augustine's understanding of the whole body of Christ is complemented by his understanding of the Eucharist. In his earliest extant homily, I find this quite remarkable, Augustine tells those about to be baptized that the value of each Christian is witnessed in the blood poured out for them every day. This daily pouring out of Christ, preciosimum sanguinem, is perhaps Augustine's earliest and most explicit reference to the Eucharist. The Eucharist points to how it is God who does the work of remaking the Christian, in a way, daily. God is the farmer, caretaker, and harvester. The Eucharist is the source of nourishment by which the human is remade through the incarnation. Of Christ in the Eucharist, he states, quote, You will feed on his flesh. You will be given his blood to drink. By the shedding of it, sins are forgiven, debts waved, stains wiped away. 
end quote. He notes how, in imagery that harkens to Roman custom, but also to the belching of the Manichaean elect, Augustine tells these competentes that when they have been satiated on his bread, they will give a healthy belch in honor of his bread and his glory. The very sustenance of the Christian is the Eucharist. But even more, Augustine emphasizes that the Eucharist is the sacrament of unity. Just as is the sacrament of charity, so the sacrament of unity, the sacrament of charity. Hence, the Eucharist is the bread of life for the whole church, it is the kind of food that consumes the one eating it. This is beautifully recounted in the Confessions when Augustine relays God speaking to him in an ecstatic experience. God says to him, quote, when you consume me, it is you who are consumed. Augustine's failure at this point of the Confessions is that he seeks simply to hold on to God rather than be transformed by God. Augustine's theology of the church then is profoundly social and raises questions of how this body wedded to God in time extends beyond the so-called Christiana tempora, a topic I will address tomorrow. But the question is raised, if the church is the body of Christ and this body realizes a more profound human solidarity, it is not a solidarity realized is it a solidarity realized for its own sake? It is not. If it were realized for its own sake, this would make it something merely accomplished by humanity, perhaps initiated by God, but enduring and persistent in part through the cohesion of its members. If this image works, it would be as if I gave you a great sum to start a business or some such venture. You might come to think that the reach of this venture is limited to your work, to your success, to your merit. No, rather for Augustine, the church is concrete as it extends through time, through all time. And this community, founded in Christ, is gracefully bound and transformed through its head. Yet, this work is not so narrowly confined. When Augustine is presented with some questions that the philosopher Palfrey asked nearly a century earlier, Augustine stops to explain how it is that the church is not merely a novel historical occurrence. Palfrey asked why Christianity had to occur now, or rather recently, and what of all those who lived before or who live elsewhere and have not been visibly joined to the Christian faith? Augustine's response is, I think, remarkable, but it is long. Quote, from the beginning of the human race, at times in a more hidden way, at times in a more evident way, as God saw that it was appropriate to the times, he did not cease to speak in prophecies, and there were not lacking those who believed in him, both from Adam up to Moses and in the people of Israel, which was by a particular mystery, a prophetic people, as well as in other peoples before Christ came in the flesh. For some are already mentioned in the holy books of the Hebrews from the time of Abraham, people not his descendants according to the flesh, nor members of the people of Israel, nor those joined, who joined the people of Israel from another society. They were nonetheless sharers in this mystery. Why then should we not believe that there were also others now and then at other times and in other peoples, even though we do not find them mentioned in the same authorities? In that way, the salvation brought by this religion, the only true religion by which true salvation is also truly promised, was never lacking to anyone who was worthy of it, and anyone to whom it was lacking was unworthy of it. End quote. Sharers in the mystery of God's action to unite humanity to Christ is not limited temporally or locally. Augustine's common example, especially in later works, is Job, 
who was neither Jewish nor had the law. Nevertheless, Job is judged in the scriptures to be righteous and holy. Hence, Augustine rejects Porphyry's suggestion that there is no universal way presented in time for salvation or for the soul or for the human, a point I'll address tomorrow. In response, Augustine articulates his understanding of the extension of Christ's activity beyond the limit placed by Porphyry's objections of localization and temporal boundedness. To put it differently, and in view of the whole of what I have said of Augustine's ecclesiology, for Porphyry, if Christ's work is in time, and it truly transforms the human in time, in and as the church, as the body, then it cannot be a true societas. Yet, as Augustine's incarnational ecclesiology suggests, throughout time, by God's grace, in potentially any place, the human is incorporated into the church. This is a truly concrete transformation. It is a social transformation, even if the scope of this is limited in time and place. The reality of the church does not exclude the visible, here and now, simply because it has incorporated those who have come before. Indeed, that the church exceeds what may be the limited scope of a given moment or, or space does not diminish its concrete reality in the here and now. Rather, for Augustine, it should remind the Catholic what kind of societas the church truly is, founded and constituted by the gracious mercy of the Incarnation. Thank you. Yes. Is there anything in Augustine's ecclesiology um, laying out distinctions between those who are members of the church that are in a state of mortal sin but are still members somehow even though they lack grace? Um, or because you're, you spoke of grace as being what unifies the church, mm -hmm. and that makes sense. But uh, yeah. there's obviously a, like a fringe situation where you have to address people presumably in the church who don't have grace. Uh, does he discuss that at all? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I note, though, like, in particular, you'd say penitents, mm -hmm. right? And they're discussed all the time. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, the ultimate sort of uh, status of these penitents is sort of in gods. Mm -hmm. But they're still, in a sense, part of the church. In fact, some of it is so much so that... Um, it's somewhat confusing today. We, I don't think this exists really, but the catechumenate did not just consist of those entering the Lenten pre-baptismal catechesis. Augustine himself seems to have been a catechumenate. Perhaps there's the little thing recounted where he's put up by his parents. An interesting thing to say, his parent, his father would be there, uh, but that's another point. Um, that people are catechumens who then delay baptism, some of them their whole lives, and Augustine writes about this as well. And these though are considered in some places as still parts of the church. Does he discuss the mechanism of that? Well, there is, a, there is still a, a right that sort of signs in. They still are at risk. He still says, ultimately, baptism <coughs> right, is what includes okay. your part. And the Eucharist is a sacrament of unity. So delaying this is a precarious thing. But they're still, in a way, part of the church. But they're, he would say, sort of risking quite a bit to endure in that state. They're the same with penitents, say, like performing penitents. And the Enchiridion talks about some of this, but also many of his homilies with the penitents and those in mortal states. What Augustine had to say about uh, Eucharist and being food that we consume that is simultaneously consuming us, this is something that you see um, in literature across different saints in different centuries. Um, Probably but, from Augustine. Yeah, um, you had mentioned that um, 
you had said a phrase something like uh, it was something that he fought against. Uh, in the Confessions of Books uh, 7, he recounts this uh, where he has an ascent to God and he wants to consume God. And then he's turned away. He has, he's not actually partaking. He's not baptized or anything at that point. But the whole exchange is basically he wants to consume God and God tells him, no, I'm the kind of thing. If you eat me, you consume me, I consume you. Is that something you see him return to in later writings of uh, once he is able to partake in being consumed by the Eucharist. Uh, yes, in certain ways. It's never, in my mind, not as vivid as that one in the Confessions. It's sort of followed by uh, Book 9, uh, which ends with his sort of at the altar and Monica and everyone praying and he hands this out every day. So there are the other references to it as Sacrament of Unity uh, and what this means. But that, the one in Confessions, perhaps because... I've read it so many times, and many know it is very vivid uh, and part of a failure. So it accentuates that failure. He explicitly doesn't want that. Yes. Thank you. Um, I wanted to take up on, on your references to the Eucharist and what you just said towards the end about belonging to the church, even yeah. outside of its physical scope. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could say something about um, how Augustine understands the church's visibility. So of course, like especially when it comes to the sacraments, we have like a rather different understanding of what the sacraments are, like you think about Peter Longer, like the seven sacraments. But um, we were chatting earlier with Father Augustine after this lecture, and we were saying, you know, there are sort of Augustinian models that will allow you to take out the communes in the way he's been describing yeah, yeah. as a sacrament, very probably understood like a sacramental society. So I guess my question is how does Augustine negotiate that with like in, in respect to the church's visibility as a controlling the field spiritual place or incorporated in? Yeah, so I think uh, part, so how does he negotiate the sacrament, uh, the visibility of sacraments in society in a sense? Uh, the first, I guess, just speaking generally, there are lots, we have several of these homilies, you probably know from the dedication, the dedicatio ecclesia, which are not quite, he doesn't refer to them as sacraments, but nonetheless are very visible public things. Uh, it seems even his being placed on the, the, the sort of uh, step with his parents is a somewhat visible thing. Uh, the markings that you have for some of these catechumens and their professions are at least palam, supposed to be open. Uh, so the, all of those dimensions, I think in a way, Augustine, uh, because the bishop has a political role, you know, he has his other chair and other responsibilities, that dimension also is extremely public, but not necessarily sacramental, but still an extension of that. Um, and as sort of taking from you, as you say, with martyrs. Sacraments and their celebrations and where they are, their shrines and these things. Um, so all of those ways, I think. I don't know. It's hard because sacraments such a difficult term at this time. We have, would say seven, but how Augustine uses it, uh, I think, very visibly is in a sense, very publicly so. Uh, not to the point of the communes, uh, but there are some. I would say there's room in Augustine for this. Maybe not the complete co-opting. I think maybe there would be some suspicion. But 
um, if that makes sense. I think very much in many places. I also think living in a time where Constantine's vision at least is known, right? I mean, you, you couldn't help but see how some of these crosses and these things, I mean, people seem to know, pagans, we have examples of them seeming to know that Christians sort of kiss the, the pillars in the church. So many of these practices you could see, there's now going to be increasingly sort of public pieties everywhere, uh, which then the bishops are very much involved in and, and the deacons and others. So I think very much so, uh, a visible sacrament and, and that's going to be, it will play itself out with the vandals very badly. Two questions. Um, so I'm really interested in this uh, process of incorporation of the person into the, the body of Christ. Um, so is, for Augustine, is, is this incorporation kind of a, I'm not really sure how to say this other than like a one and done, right? Like is there like a moment of incorporation or is there like a continuing process of incorporation of the person into the body of Christ? So yes, uh, yes, the latter. Okay. Um, so is this one and done incorporation? Yes, it's continual process. However, uh, the thing about it, and this is how sort of just think of it as grace works. If someone is baptized on their deathbed, I think I will say, I think this is part of why Augustine is less, uh, less agonizing at times over his father's fate than his mother's. Right, he's baptized right before his death seemingly, or at least within the time. And in a sense, he did no wrong, as he says, no so great and after this, there's a sense in which, yes, baptism alone may affect this. However, it isn't one and done. I mean, this would just be kind of sure. sort of moving over to the, I mean, because one is incorporated and it is lived, etc. Can I follow up on that? Yes, absolutely. So, then, so if, if it is this process, then what is the role of the person within this incorporation, right? Do, must we continue, like, make a, a, a continuing choice to, to sort of be incorporated within the body of the church? Or is this something that you just sort of... So I would like to... Yeah, yeah. So is it, is it something that we have to sort of continually choose? So at first, I would like to bracket language of choice in this. Because it sort of leads down a certain path, I think. Uh, sort of constant self-reflection. And I would say navel-gazing is a modern phenomenon. I'm just kidding. But it does seem like a, it leads down a certain path. There's... If I may append, I guess, the Eucharist to this as something which one is to participate in as that which is then the sacrament of charity, if you take it as an infusion of charity, and the sacrament of unity, it sort of shows you that the conditions, you are not going to make this unity yourself. So that alone, like how you are part, you are, you are receiving it as a gift. You are transformed by it. So that alone shows, I think, something of its continual process. But it also doesn't, that, that I hope shows, then it isn't one just chooses again to reaffirm, as one says, like, today I will be a good parent again. Uh, this sort of process. Of course, there are sort of moral decisions that come into place, but then that might put the onus so much on you. So I, I want to just caution against that. Does that make sense? But I mean, still as one obviously lives this out, and I think then the model of as a sacrament of unity and you could say a penance itself shows more. Like the one is continually acting. But I think the emphasis on choice or decision is maybe leads down a certain trajectory that I think is not where Augustine goes. Then maybe it does. Yes. Um, is the act of giving as a basis for a friendship um, supposed to be an image of divine kenosis or something like that? So I wasn't doing it that way. I think, yes, I mean, you could think of John 15, you're no longer servants but friends, and this thing of how that is a gift. Um, 
I just, I hope I, my image is clear that I find this to be, there's no way to explain reductively friendship, right? It would be like, why are you friends with someone? Well, because I grew up with them or because they like a video game or because they like this. Um, I know I'm taking this away from what you asked. So just to say, as an image of something that is a relation, a standing next to someone of love, which doesn't have that reductive. So then of a gift undeserved, yes. And then divine kenosis, yes. At least as John 15, as an example, which Augustine refers to this verse obliquely and explicitly numerous times. Is that? Yep. Yes. Do you think that by the time Augustine becomes the city of God, you have invisibility in the church changes because uh, one of the things about the city of God is the mixing and weaving together of members of both cities and how um, members of the church might not necessarily be members of the city of God. So there's a complication there, and at least the visible entity of the church. So I'm just wondering, you do a lot of the confession, so you think by the time that he does the city of God, is you change that all? Uh, so first I'll say something of this tomorrow. Uh, secondly, uh, the enerationes, these ones, are the middle of the fours, like 408, 410 that I'm using, uh, so close to the city of God. Um, so to say the church is always visible, and then does he become more cautious of how visible? I would say yes, slightly. But they were talking about from not the confessions, but from works earlier than that. In only, I think, two references would I say that that is the case, that he seems to be triumphalistic, if you will. Um, I think that the caution, though, is, is just of simply... It, because it's formed by grace, just has a functions, you don't really ever know. I mean, if you did know, you'd be a church of the pure. So I think the Donatist, it doesn't, it doesn't require the fall of Rome. Right? You just have to see that if you're going to be a community that's constituted by a free act of love, then you realize you haven't earned this. Uh, and therefore, if you say, well, we all deserve to be here, and we're all good because, well, only good people could be here, right? it's a different kind of community. So I think people emphasize very much the masa damnata, but masa is unformed, right? It's a thing without form. So how large, how big, who, all of these, that's not Augustine's focus. Um, if that... Yes, yeah, so would you say that that's a, almost like a positive reinforcement uh, for faith? Yes, yeah, and mercy, and almsgiving, and all of those things as well, concretely, which is something also I didn't mention publicly, all of those so I was interested a couple of days ago when you compared the Stoics to the Platonists as, you know, the Pla like, to become a Platonist is you're sort of joining a movement or, a, or a, I mean, an academy. And so I'm just thinking about um, there's this sort of on, on and off status of, of the, the Platonic Academy in the Empire. I think it's kind of moving around sort of before and during and after Augustine's lifetime and then a few decades after him will be sort of formally shut down. The Justinian will, of course, eventually shut it down altogether. Right, yeah. So this is sort of open-ended, but I mean, I'm sort of wondering just your thoughts about that. Um, yeah, the possibility of a Platonic Academy in, in the Christian Roman Empire. Um, it could be, you know, basically like Augustine's idea of uh, a sort of community of, in friendship but I mean, it's, it sort of seems like in some way he's, he is fighting, uh, he's, he's debating the very representatives of that kind of yeah. community. Um, maybe he would be sort of open to a coexistence with them or something like that. But just, I don't know, getting open-ended, your thoughts about that. Yeah. So would he be... <coughs> 
favorable to a coexistence of a sort of platonic society and the Christian one. Um, I, I mean, I just say this is sort of a, <laughs> copying out, I guess, but uh, he seems to think that they should convert. Uh, and I don't mean just forcefully. I just would say even in De Trinitate, the amount of time spent, even in Book 13, which I would think wouldn't register uh, much with a kind of Platonic philosopher, still with arguing about the tradition, how it should have led them to this point. Um, but he never really has great scorn for them. Uh, I, I, I take the Contro uh, Paganos of the City of God to be of a more broad movement than simply Platonism. Uh, the more sort of civic or, or social kind of paganism. So I could see how he could. I don't think that's his inclination. I think that he thinks they should convert, um, if that makes sense. So there really is no reason for the coercion. And I will note something just of the history. The coercive tactics, though they do extend to the pagans, and there's all these, these issues of riots and things that happen, uh, more explicitly, though, it is to heretical groups. Like that's the one where Augustine more prominently, if you will, is at least uh, supportive with some caveats of coercion. And you could see that in the Cunctos Populus of uh, Theodosius, where he says, those who are heretics, you can't call your conventicles, or, you know, these churches. Compel them yes, compel them. And so this is the, the, so I think pagans in a certain sense, pagan philosophers, have a slightly different place than the schismatic groups do, which is interesting of itself. So there may be, if you will, more room. Okay. Yes. yes. So if Augustine puts like, such an important charity into things, people who deny charity or lack charity or deny Christ's incarnation, so do you think of the schismatic groups like Dr. Donuts is no longer Christian? Well, so it's, it's complicated, I guess, to say no longer Christian, but they're denying the incarnation. I mean, to say the point is, so are Donatists Christian? I just sort of leave that as an aside, say that he would think they're bad Christians, right? He will say that they, we profess the same thing. And note how when they come back in, there's a, uh, a ceremony of reception of a kind, seemingly presented before. Augustine gets quite angry at his congregation when he's away, he comes back, and someone had been received back as a Donatist. And then people are giving them all this, this person all this hassle, uh, and saying they're not Christian, all this stuff. Augustine's quite angry that they would do this when they have re-entered peace. So the answer part is no, he would say they're still Christian. But the point is functionally, what they're rejecting is, even though, as I should make clear, Donatists are Nicene Christians, they confess the Trinity, etc. But he's saying they deny the incarnation because in a sense, you don't need the incarnation and its effects, which is to make us see it us. And so uh, they're, they're missing the incarnation. But uh, to go so broadly say they're not Christian, no. That makes sense. Because you want, I think we want right down the line. Like he's saying, this is what's operative in your theology, is that you effectively are denying the incarnation. I was wondering if that may lead into like, how you call on the emperor to come down. Well, I think a lot of those are on the ground things. I mean, his friend Avodius has asked support on him. We don't see him for a long time, seemingly around 14 years. Uh, he avoids what seems to be murder himself by taking the wrong route by accident. I mean, the stuff with the Donatists, people played down. It was very violent on the ground in certain places. Uh, so there is a certain sense of, I guess, the reality of this conflict uh, that goes to the coercion. And, but I think the state was already, it had already had the sort of radical dimensions. Theodosius was very much for this unity anyway. So 
and he's not emperor at the time, but that makes sense. Yes, it's. All right,